Heritage Park Baptist Church, we make apprentices to Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit heritagepark.org. If you have a Bible this morning, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 34. If you don't have a Bible uh, that you can put in your lap and you want one, there's some on the side of the tech booth. If you would prefer a digital version of that, you can open up the Bible app and find our live event and track along right here. We're wrapping up today uh, this series through Exodus as we've gone kind of episode by episode uh, through uh, through this book. And uh, although this is not the end of the book, we've already kind of covered the end of the book when we uh, covered the tabernacle stuff. Uh, even though this isn't the end of the book, this is the climax of the book. So God has brought his people out of Egypt. Um, he has given them uh, his law. He's delivered them through the Red Sea, given them his law, saying this is the best way to live. And he has uh, tolerated, put up with uh, their grumblings, moanings, and frustrations, all that kind of stuff. He has even endured with them in relationship with them through their sin and impatience. And now he has Moses on the mountain and is about to speak to Moses and show Moses himself. And so uh, before we actually jump into the text, I just want to uh, note here that in the last episode uh, of, our, of our series, there are people who relate to a God who is not. What I mean by that is um, we, we want to relate to the God who is, but the truth is, is that some of us relate to the God who isn't. The two most prevalent ways that that happens around here, been around a pastor a while in this particular area, dealing with our particular uh, version uh, of culture, the two particular ways, here they are. Number one, it is, a, it is a transaction. There is an orientation towards transaction, meaning what? Meaning that uh, we uh, build in some sort of mathematical formula or flow chart. All you engineers? Yes, everybody was excited about flow charts and... Formulas, not at all. <laughs> you input on this side of the equation, output on this side of the equation. God, I'm going to do some things and check some boxes, and therefore you are going to be beholden to me or act like this. God, I'm going to not do some things, and therefore some sort of blessing is going to come my way. Input, uh, you run through the machine, and here comes output. The problem is, is that life has a profound way of us giving input that we think will get us one thing, and yet somehow, some way, what? Some different output comes along. What happens in that moment is not that we blame ourselves, because we're never at fault. You don't believe me? Just ask the person whose life is going sideways. It's not my fault. It's my bosses or my spouses or my kids or my whatever. Or, God, I, I put in all the variables and you didn't come through. Transaction. But God doesn't work like that. The, the second thing uh, is simply what I, around here, we call it functional atheism. There, there's a... Uh, there's an older kind of more theological term called deism. And basically what happens is that God, you, you would never meet somebody. Who would, I mean, you just wouldn't say, oh, no, there's not a God. I absolutely believe that there's a God. But what he has done is spun the world into existence, uh, put it, you know, 93-ish million miles away from the sun and just left us to ourselves and said, good luck, kids. Hope it goes okay. I'll check in on, I got some other stuff to work on in the universe, but let me check in on you here in a few hundred years or millennia or whatever. 
a functional atheism. Oh, yeah, I believe that there's a God. He's just not engaged in my life. He doesn't care about my life. He's not uh, working in my life. And, uh, you know, frankly, I'm not sure he is all that aware of what's actually happening in the world. How do I know he's not aware of what's happening in the world? Look at what's happening in the world. Surely if there was a God who was engaged like that, excuse, excuse me, surely if there was a God who was engaged, he would not let these things happen. But that is not the testimony of the Bible. Um, it is, that instead is a version of, again, functional atheism. That's the God who is not. But if you were to ask God, and we're going to see it here in the text, if you were to ask God what burns in his heart, like you could just peel off the layers and understand what is functioning inside of God, here's what you would find. You would find a white, hot, blazing fire of desire to be in relationship with his people. That's what you would find. God, I'm going to give you these five things. I'm going to check all these. That's not what he wants. Set that aside. God, I'm going to put... No, 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 no. He wants to be in relationship with his people. That is what is at his very core. And so today in Exodus chapter 34, he's going to describe himself to us. He's going to reveal himself to us through his encounter with Moses. And we'll see that, man, he... He wants to be in relationship with his people. So we're going to start in verse 5, Exodus 34, verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Now, all caps, well, we've learned this before, but all caps means uh, the, the, um, the saving name of God, Yahweh or Jehovah, depending upon where it's I am. That's where we are. So verse 6, the Lord passed before him, that's Moses, and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, I am, I am a God merciful and gracious slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Some of you may have for thousands of generations, which is probably what he means there. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the uh, children, excuse me, iniquity of the fathers on the children, children's children to the third and fourth generation. We'll talk about that here in a minute. So the God who is wants to be, has a burning desire to be in relationship with his people. And he, he, he demonstrates this, um, explains this, um, shows us this by revealing himself to Moses. He stands before Moses. I'm going to, you come up on the mountain, I'm going to slide you into this little uh, uh, cave here, this little rock shelter, and I'm going to put my hand over you, and I'm going to walk by, and there is no way that you can see my face. So I'm going to keep you hidden until I get past, and then I'm going to lift my hand for just a second, and you're going to see the backside of me, because there's no way you could take in all of my glory, your face would melt off. Let me show you who I am. Let me declare to you who I am. And he says two things. Uh, we're kind of putting big summary things, but let me just give you these two things. Number one, God is compassionate. The Lord, do you see in verse six, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, gracious, slow to anger. Th those three things, we're going to start there. Some of you may actually have compassionate in your uh, translation, but that, that's kind of a summary of those first three things that God says about himself. And he breaks it down this way. He is merciful, meaning what? That he moves toward us. Don't miss it, church family. He moves toward us in all of your stuff, in all of your brokenness, in all of your frustrations, in all of your anxieties, in all the things that are uh, twirling around and swirling around in your head right now. He moves toward us. Let me just give you a couple of pictures of this. Um, a few uh, nights ago, somewhere in the middle of the night, screaming ensued. Yes? 
Anybody got kids that still happens with? So it still happens. Screaming ensues. Wake up. Uh, you kind of, you know, blurry-eyed mind your way and try not to trip on anything and get to the source of the screaming. What's going on? I had a bad dream. Okay, okay. Pat, pat, pat. Back in bed. You sit there for a minute. Now your mind's all, you know, that's, that's kind of how that goes. But you move toward them with a, a, a sense of, hey, I, I hear you and I'm moving toward you. Back in 2014, uh, we're playing in the front yard, getting ready to clean up. Um, one kid falls on top of another kid and puts an arm right through the forearm of those two. Snap, snap. My wife looks at me and says, get your keys. And at that point, I am moving at a different pace and with a different level of energy toward the situation. When we say God is moving toward us in his mercy, just because you call out doesn't mean he's coming full bore. He, God is not going to have a panic attack about the things that are going on. He knows exactly how to meet you, but he is moving toward you. Some of you live with the lie that God somehow, some way is just kind of looking down on your life going, ah, man, I don't know. I don't know. What you need to know is that his orientation is toward you and he is moving toward you in all your brokenness, in all your frustration, in all your anxiety, in all your insecurity, in all the things that he is, in all the things that you bring to the table that you wish weren't a part of your life. God deals with you according to your frailty and he moves toward you. He is merciful and gracious, meaning he does good. He is, his intent is to do good toward us, for us, in us, with us. He, is, he desires to do good. He desires to do good. And so church family, just hear this, that the God who is, is a God who not only is going to let us be who we are in our frailties, but then he is going to do good in such a way that he transforms us so that we are something different. This can be big stuff. Man, all of my life, I've struggled with this addiction right here. And God moves toward us in mercy. And then he does good to us in his grace so that this now is a part of our story, but it is a past part of our story. It can be huge stuff. It can be little bitty stuff. And so some of you know that our uh, church family is engaged with a, uh, through Houston Welcome Refugees, is engaged with a family. Um, who got out of Afghanistan. And Tuesday, we got to throw a couch in the back of the trailer there and haul it over to them. And um, we're, the husband and I are getting the, the couch there. It's a seven-something foot couch. And uh, their apartment, you go in the door, and I mean immediately, you have to turn left. Thank you. Okay, I appreciate that. I just... My life is better because of your sympathy. Thank you for that. I, so we, we go in. Cushions are off. We've taken the feet off the couch. We got this thing. We're, we're working this thing. And I'm telling you, it is stuck, lodged. So much so that my hands are off of it. And I'm going, math, geometry, Tetris. What do we need? What do we need to make this happen? Apparently, what we need is uh, my wife uh, over here who just starts praying. Lord, you know we need this couch inside. Please help them get this couch in. And I'm not kidding. We went, and it slipped in with just, I mean, that much paint. And I'm like, 
That's just what we need. What, what is that? That is nothing but couch-filled, turn-a-corner grace to a people who desperately need a sense of God's goodness in their life. And then we got to sit on the floor and have tea and snacks. And it's, it's, sometimes it's huge stuff. And sometimes it's a couch sliding through a door when you thought it was stuck. He does good. He does good. Lastly, I love this. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. And this next part, slow to anger. Slow to anger. Are you? Now, in the 830 service, as soon as I said that, people were like, amen. Amen. Why? Why? Because we want that. We want a God who's slow to anger. Here's the good news about this for you and for me is that he never just blows up. This is a sense in which, I don't know another phrase. It's, I think this is my own, but this is covenantal patience, meaning he is exercising his patience based on the covenant that he himself has established with us on the relationship, for the sake of our own redemption. God is slow to anger with us because he's working on us and working in us to bring us to full redemption and so and to full reconciliation with him and to be a part of his kingdom and his life here in the world. He is slow to anger because we need him to be slow to anger. He doesn't have a bad day, folks. He doesn't. You don't have to go home and wonder what kind of mood he's in or if he's been drinking. You don't have to step into the throne room of God Almighty and wonder if his inclination is toward you today. He is merciful and he is gracious and he's slow to anger. Now, inevitably, this question comes up. Is there a point that God would just be worn out and take his belt off? There are times when God, having having been having walked through years and years and years and sent multiple warnings and messages. There are times when God steps in and goes this far and no further. We're not going to go any more than this right here. And I just point, we won't do it now. Second Kings chapter 17, you can go look it up. It's an explanation. The kingdom of Israel, boy, they had worked their way through all of these prophets and they didn't listen to any of them. And 300 years worth of God being patient with them and they weren't paying any attention to that. And finally, God's like, okay, kids, listen, I, I am doing something now because you have not listened, you have not done the things, and there is just, you have unleashed all sorts of evil in the world, and so I'm going to let the, the Assyrian people come in and take you over, and then I'm going to redeem you. And so people say, well, is there a point where God hits, like, the anger? Yes, yes, but you read the Bible, it's centuries worth. I love that, and not without warning. And here's the thing, God does, he does get angry, like his, there are things in him that cause his anger, but, but listen to how his anger is directed. Uh, staff were reading this book and, um, they read this quote, uh, this week from Thomas Goodwood's the heart of Christ, all his anger because of Jesus, because of who he is and what he's done for us, all his anger is turned upon you, right? No, it's turned upon your circumstance. No, all his anger is turned upon 
your sin to ruin it. Not to ruin you, but to ruin it. God directs his anger toward our sin to destroy sin and its consequences in our lives. This, this is the God. We, we, when we sin, when we um, approach God, we, we expect, because of all the stuff that's in our lives, we expect to be thrown out. Instead, He is the one who takes us in. We expect, when we walk up to God, oh, God, it's me again. We expect Him to run away, repulsed by, by who we are. Instead, He runs toward us. We expect God to kind of clear out, okay, let's set up a court here for the sake of judgment. Instead, he sets up a party for you and for me. We expect that when we step forward with all of our stuff and we set ourselves before God, that it will somehow incite his wrath. But instead, it incites his compassion. How do you know that? Look at Hosea chapter 11, verse 8. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? This is a, Ephraim is a moniker, a nickname for Israel. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I uh, make you like Adma or treat you like Zeboim? This is uh, two little townlets, uh, little hamlets outside of Sodom and Gomorrah. How can I bring you to destruction? My heart is recoiled within me. Don't think recoiled as in horror. Think turned over, spun up. My compassion grows warm and tender towards these people who had spurned God over and over and over again. His anger is turned toward your sin to ruin it. He is compassionate. And some people think, oh, time out here. You go talking like this, people will continue to sin and they will actually sin a lot more. Oh, well, this is no big deal. No, 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 no. To set God's greatness on display, which we absolutely believe in and try to do, it it will take on the powers of our ego. That's true. But to set God's compassion on display, which is what he does here. This is the lead story. The Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful. Slow to anger, merciful and gracious and slow to anger. The lead story is, is that God is compassion. If we set greatness on display, that, that attacks the ego. It deals with the ego. But if we set compassion on display, it actually invites in us, in, ignites in us a kind of affection for him. His greatness may overwhelm our ego, but his compassion, his compassion captures our hearts. And that's why Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, It is his kindness that leads us to repentance. He's compassionate. Secondly, he is also committed. And look look, as we work our way through the rest of this revelation here. He is abounding in steadfast love. Abounding in steadfast love. Some of you may have a different translation or something, but the the idea, it is the defining word, uh, relational word of the Old Testament. It is something along the lines of loyal love. Steadfast love, it's a good translation. There's a sense of loyalty uh, that is connected there that even though uh, we may turn away, God in his life is never, uh, in in his uh, life with us is never going to turn away. It It is his version and his demonstration, his abounding demonstration of his dedication to you and the passionate pursuit of relationship with you. James chapter 4, New Testament. 
talks about it like this. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he jealously yearns, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. God is oriented to give us mercy and grace and um, being slow to anger. And he is jealous to be in relationship with us. He is committed via his abounding loyal love toward us. What kind of love is it? Loyal, that's a description, but look at how Jesus described it. As the Father has loved me, Jesus says, so I have loved you, so abide in my love. So in the same way that God the Father loves God the Son, the same way that the Father loves Jesus, now Jesus is loving us in the same unceasing way, unstoppable way, unflappable way that God has loved Christ, so Christ now is loving us. It's a loyal kind of love. Secondly, he says, abounding in steadfast love and abounding in faithfulness. This is a kind of trueness or a true faithfulness, meaning there's no deceit in him. What you see is what you get. There's not a variance. There's not a tolerance uh, that you have to worry about. Even if it's point zero zero eight or whatever, then you don't have to worry about this. The same God that you go to sleep worshiping uh, today is the same God that you wake up worshiping tomorrow. The same God who is seeing you through today is going to be the same God who's seeing you through tomorrow. Church family, listen to me. There is no greater place to stand and, and find a sense of security than the faithfulness of God. When we sing, all his promises are yes and amen. Faithful you are, church family. How, how about our world being in chaos, news headlines, pandemics, politics, up, down, left, right, this, that. We have a place to stand. And it is on the faithfulness of God Almighty. You, you want security in your life. You want to be able to set down anxiety in your life. Start here. The very same God. The God who is today is the God who was yesterday and the God who will be tomorrow. That's the place to start. It is true, true faithfulness. He keeps this loyal love and faithfulness to thousands of generations. That's the first phrase in verse 7. Then, forgiving iniquity. You see that in, in verse 7? Forgiving forgiving. He, God is a free, this is how committed he is. He knows that you and I are going to stick it in the ditch every so often. And he forgives us. And then he gives us three, he gives us three uh, words to describe this. Um, he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. And we won't do the Hebrew stuff, but listen, uh, forgiving iniquity means uh, dumb choices that you and I make. Anybody? Don't point. Don't do it. Dumb choices that you and I make. Mistakes, you might say. Iniquity. He forgives not only that, but also transgression. These are moments where we actively choose rebellion against God. God says, don't do this. What do we do? We do it. God says, do this. What do we do? We don't do it. Active rebellion against God. He is willing to forgive. Active rebellion. Forgiving iniquity and transgressions. And then the last one, sin. It's the umbrella term. It's the all the other stuff term. It's the catch-all. It's the junk drawer. It's the all the other ways that we can think to sin that is not covered by the other two. He's got that too. Good news. You are great sinners. 
And God is a greater forgiver. And lastly, he's just, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Church family, do you understand that his commitment to justice in the world means this? Evil does not have the last word. It may be the loudest word, but it will not be the last word. It will not. He is just. We did this a few weeks ago. I just want to highlight this one more time because uh, the rest of verse 7, sorry, that's me banging on this. Uh, The rest of verse 7 may be a little squirrely, and I don't want it to be squirrely. Here we go. You ready? Uh, By no means clear the guilty. God is just. Uh, Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, children's children to the third and fourth generation. Here's um, how typical English readers engage that. Oh, my kids are going to get it because of my own sin. Everybody sees how that can be read that way. This is not what he's saying. So much so that you can go look it up later. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16, the very same Moses that God is meeting with here has to clarify and say, hey, look, this is not what that means. It's not what it means. Is it true that there are trickle-down effects? Absolutely. If you uh, uh, choose to engage in some addictive behavior, will your family receive impact for that? That is true. It is true. But it's not God just beating on your kids because of you. This is, um, instead of that, this is something along the lines of every generation, every single generation is going to be responsible for responding to God. Just because uh, my parents sinned and got punished for that sin, that doesn't mean that I am going to get off. I am still responsible to God. Here's the best um, kind of anal- uh, analogy that I know of. I've got a kid. He's 19, downtown U of H, killing it, doing awesome. So proud of him. He is making some money, doing these little side hustle jobs. It's fantastic. He is going to make enough money this year to pay taxes. I hope he's watching online right now, son. April's coming. It's coming. Just because I pay taxes doesn't mean he's not responsible for his. That this is this is what this means. Just because a generation above me was disciplined by God because of their sin. It doesn't mean I get off. There's no coattail Christianity. You can't, you can't slide in on somebody else's stuff. So what then is our response? Just quickly here. Here we go. Uh, very first thing, position yourself to hear from him. Uh, it's in the app. You can go look it up later. If not, uh, chapter 33, verse 17, down to uh, the first part of chapter 34, God speaks to Moses and he says, Moses, you have found favor in my sight, so you need to get ready to come up and meet with me. Position yourself to hear from him by believing that God wants to meet with you. Position yourself to do so. And then pastorally, you have to get ready for that. I mean, when you say position, you have to step into faith that says God wants to meet with me. But also, you have to ready yourself for that. A couple of things that happen here in the first part of chapter 34 um, is this. Moses clears away the distractions and he gets up early in the morning. I am not necessarily recommending getting up early in the morning. That's my chosen method. If you want to try that, you give it a shot and let me know how it works out for you. But what we can't do is have our cell phone ringing while we're trying to meet with God. Leave the phone in the other room, people. 
The king is on the line. Let's put the other stuff away. No distractions. Okay, secondly, do not ever hesitate to worship. Never hesitate to worship. Look at verse 8. Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. When God meets with you and you meet with God and he shows you something of himself, the very best thing you can do is fall down and say, yes, God, yes, 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 yes. You are the God who is and you are worthy of my worship today. And lastly, um, don't, excuse me, let me say it positively. You should expect some funny looks. So, so at the end of chapter 34, Moses has met with God and he comes down the mountain and his face is glowing so much so that they have to put a veil over his face so he can actually talk to the people. Now, can you imagine the very first person who rolls up on Moses? Be like, giving him that side eye look like, what is going on here? Church family, may our lives be bright enough to catch some side eye looks from some people. May we be the people who have met with God and are so changed by Him, so lit up by Him, so radiating the glory of God in the face of Jesus that some people are like, mm. maybe we these may we be those kind of people. Why? Why? Here's the thing: burning in God's heart is His desire to meet with us. And our response, the very first response is to position ourselves to meet with him. Listen, he's already positioned himself to meet with us. When he sent Jesus to the earth, it was to reveal his heart to us. I thought it was to get us to heaven. Listen, eternal life, according to the Bible, is relationship with him. John 17, verse 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And when he positioned himself between two thieves on a cross, he took the very thing out of the way that kept us from meeting with God, our sin. He died so that he could be a forgiving God toward us so that he could be merciful and gracious. We position ourselves to meet with God because God has already positioned himself to meet with us. And so we come to this moment, a time of prayer where maybe you as a person who doesn't know Jesus needs to give your life to Christ today, knowing um, that his love for you has done exactly what we just talked about. His love for you, his desire for you has made it such that you can be in relationship with him. For some of us who do know Jesus, maybe we need to set some things down. We need to put some things aside. We need to leave some things in the other room or we need to take some things up. This is something for me to do. This is a place for me to clear some space and relate to God. No matter how you need to respond. I'm going to pray. We'll have a moment here, uh, a song of response. Some of us will definitely want to stand and sing. Some of us will want to remain seated. However you need to respond, uh, you feel free to do so. Would you join me now as we pray? Um, Father, for the sake of these next few moments, and for the sake of your kingdom among us, and for the sake of the work of your spirit in your people in the church. I pray uh, that the, the whispers, the, the encouragement, the instruction, the challenge that you've set out for us here, 
pray that it would settle now. Some of our hearts are really struggling, weighted down by this or that. Let it settle on us. Some of us are struggling, God, to believe that your heart is turned toward us, that you are inclined toward us, that your disposition is to do us good. Help us to believe. Help us to believe. And like Moses, God, may we find a moment here where we meet with you and we are forever changed as a result. This is what I ask now in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.